and I'm excited to jump into the word together today. My name's Eric Johnson, pastor here at the church. It is a joy to be with you and open the word together. I'm certainly grateful to receive the coveted Super Bowl Sunday preaching slot that every pastor wants. Turn in your Bibles today to Romans chapter 2. We continue today um, in our series in Romans, we're calling The Beautiful Disruption, and we continue in week two of what we're calling in this section of Romans, we're calling The Gospel and Judgmentalism. So last week we looked at Romans 2 verses 1 to 5, and this week as we continue in this sacred text that is um, written to real people in real community, trying to follow Jesus right in the heart of the Roman Empire. God was speaking to them, and we believe that he is speaking to us as well. Amen? Amen. So chapter 2, verses 6 to 16, it says this, he, and it's God, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And this is the word of the Lord. All right, (laughs) there we go. So today is a uniquely judgy day. It's not the day of judgment, at least not yet. At least I don't think so. But in a few hours, just just go with me for a second. In a few hours, an estimated 117 million people will turn on their televisions and watch the exact same thing at the same time. And there will be somewhere around four hours of consecutive judging. Some of us are actually football fans. I see you. I know who you are. And we will engage in, you know, like armchair coaching, nitpicking every play call. Uh, We'll be nitpicking every decision made by the referees. Then we will criticize some of the greatest athletes in the world which is a strange projection from guys in their late 30s with dad bods, you know what I mean? It's like, it's weird that we would do that. I'm personalizing this. 
Some of you aren't football fans. The non-football fans will find that they have something to judge because there is one day a year where you actually care about the commercials and you will judge each and every one on their quality and entertainment. We'll find ourselves judging even during the timeouts. And the most judged moment of the day today will be the halftime show where hip-hop legends past and present will perform. I'm personally excited about that. Some of you aren't. And, and we'll judge that and how that goes. And if none of that gets you excited, then you'll probably just judge the queso that's made by your community group member or your mom or somebody like that. And we will just, we will, we will judge all of this while we practice one of the seven deadly sins, which is gluttony. And we will project that guilt onto the screen because judging is what we do, right? It's what, it's what we do. So I'm obviously front-loading the levity because, you know, you just heard the passage we just read. So we're going to get into things that are far more important than the Super Bowl, far more important than a game today. We're going to consider judgmentalism. Last week, we, we spent some time considering how judgmentalism harms um, and hinders our witness to the watching world. Today, we'll see how judgmentalism harms our relationships in the church and in community. We've defined judgmentalism as a sinfully critical spirit, a condemning attitude. So last week we looked at verses one to five and we considered again how judgmentalism, it keeps us from doing what Jesus did, which was weep over the world and long for its salvation. No doubt the world needs a judge, but it's not us. And today we are gonna, again, we're gonna consider how judgmentalism harms our relationships in community. I want to again remind you that the letter of Romans is it's not like a formal lecture written to pagans. It's not like, like a YouTube you know, lecture that's sort of to an imaginary audience. It's not an impersonal debate. It's a letter from a Christian leader named Paul to a people that he hoped to encourage and to challenge. It's estimated that there were may, maybe just a few hundred Christians in, in Rome, I don't know if you've been to Rome, but it is massive. Just a few hundred Christians were there and spread out over, some estimate, five to seven house churches ranging from like maybe 40 to 50 people each. This is the movement that, of the gospel that was inhabiting the city of Rome. And these churches, and, um, and certainly their leaders, it is them who this letter is addressed to. If you skip ahead to Romans 16, which I would encourage you to do at some point, you will find that the people in, these, in this letter are actually named. Paul wrote the letter under the inspiration and guide of the Holy Spirit, but he did not go and read or preach this message to the church in Rome. He sent someone. So I want to just invite you to imagine the gathering, if you will. The gathering of churches where this letter that, that we are kind of expounding over the next couple years, perhaps, um, where it was read, maybe it was just the leaders that were in the room that heard it. Um, perhaps they heard it and then 
read copies of it to their congregations, or perhaps the whole church in Rome gathered to hear it read. And if they all did, it would be a group of people around the size of this room. And as they gathered to to hear this letter that was read, again, it wasn't read by Paul, it was read by someone who Paul sent on his behalf, and her name was Phoebe. And she was a recent Gentile convert And most likely, she was a wealthy person. And it was she who delivered and read, and some have even argued that it was she who performed this letter for the church, which was made up of, stay with me, made up of Jews and Gentiles. People with names like Rufus and Andronicus, Priscilla and Aquila, Herodian. And these are people with significant differences And those differences stirred up tensions and it caused them to judge each other. And there were were significant distinctions between them that, 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 that brought this up. There was the distinguishers of ethnicity, Jew and Gentile and all that that brings. There was the distinction of social status or class, rich and poor. Most likely the poorest that heard this letter were the Jewish believers who didn't have status or class to like hold on to, but they did have something. They had the Old Testament scriptures, or what is often referred to as the law. And the wealthy in this gathering of churches were most likely the Gentiles who did not have a rich history of faith and religion, but they also didn't have the things like the dietary restrictions that their Jewish brothers and sisters had. And so there was this tension and this judgmental spirit that could often arise within the communities um, of Christ within Rome. And Paul is speaking directly to that. And I think that the reason he does that is because there's a tendency that we have to separate. We have a tendency to to tear apart what God has brought together. Let's remind ourselves, the mission of God is this, to draw men and women from every language and tribe and tongue, every corner of the earth. God's mission is to draw them together under the banner of Christ, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And he intends to hold communities together by the power of the spirit. And so Paul's agenda is to encourage that and to fan that into flame and also to call out the judgmentalism that seeks to tear that apart. Are you with me? This is what he was doing and this is what the word continues to do as we read it and and teach it and walk in it even now in our time. So we don't want to tear apart what God has brought together. And in Rome, there was this tendency Man, it would be easier, and just see if you resonate with this, it would be easier to have church communities of just wealthy people. It would be easier to just have like a sort of middle class church congregation. It would be easier to have a church of just Jewish believers. It would be easier to have a church of just Gentiles. And and, um, some have argued that, that Sunday morning, even in our time, is the most segregated hour of the week. And this is not God's intention. God's intention is to draw people from all backgrounds, ethnicities, together in Christ. And Paul is speaking directly to that. And he's speaking to the tensions that rise up within communities. 
okay? So that's what's happening kind of um, underneath the text. I would say that that's a huge part of the context of what Paul is saying and what he is writing. And so here's what we're going to do today as we consider judgmentalism in the gospel part two and we think about how judgmentalism kind of hinders our relationships and harms our relationships together. Here's what's going to happen today. We're going to walk through this text section by section and verse by verse, okay? And I'm just going to get out in front of this. This is going to be a three-point sermon, okay? Which I know all of them are that. But in the spirit of Paul, I tell you, don't judge me, okay? <laughs> all right. Whatever. We see three things. This text reveals three things. First, what our works reveal. Second, we'll see what the law reveals. And third, we will see what the day of judgment will reveal. And that's how we'll walk through the text today and invite you to do that. So let's start with this theme of what our works reveal. And to that end, I invite you to turn back to verses to verse six of Romans chapter two. It says this about God. It says, he will render to each one according to his works. That's not a misprint. He will render to each one according to his or her works. According to works. Okay, what the word works means is this, and this is very important. Works are deeds that carry out an inner desire. Think about that. Deeds that carry out an inner desire. The things that we do flow out of who we really are and what we really want. And this is a consistent teaching throughout the New Testament. We see this in the teachings of Jesus. We see it in the letter that his brother James wrote to the churches where he he tells them faith without works is dead. We see it everywhere. Thomas Cranmer, the English reformer who, who wrote the book of common prayer said this. He said, what the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. So what Paul is saying here in our our text, and I want to be really clear about this, he's saying that we will be judged by our works or deeds because they flow out of our innermost desires. And so then here's here's what Paul does. And again, we're just going to work through this verse by verse. Paul does this next. He divides the world into two kinds of seekers. He says human beings are either glory-seeking or self-seeking. Look at this in verses 7 and 8. I'll read this. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Paul tells us there are some who are seeking glory. Glory is a word about the intrinsic and infinite worth of God himself. Some are seeking that. The word honor is about perceived value. It's a word about what God values and what matters to God, and some are seeking that. And then finally he says, immortality. 
It says there are some who are seeking immortality. The word immortality, immortality literally means lacking capacity to decay. So Paul, again, talking to a, belie- a group of believers is saying this. He says, there are glory seekers and they are those who have been transformed from the inside out and they're seeking glory and honor and eternal things and this will be their inheritance in the life to come. Oftentimes, you, perhaps you notice that phrase, eternal life. Oftentimes in the New Testament, in particular in the Gospel of John, the phrase eternal life is used to talk about the life that we experience in the here and now. But what Paul is doing in this passage is he is looking and pointing ahead to the resurrection where believers will experience the resurrection of their bodies, much like the risen Lord Jesus has, and they will receive bodies that lack the capacity to decay. And they will reign with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Those who are glory-seeking are seeking that, but not everyone is seeking that. Some are self-seeking, not glory-seeking, but self-seeking, And the term self-seeking means acting for one's own gain, regardless of the discord or strife that it causes. That word self-seeking could be translated as contentious. Maybe some of your Bibles even have that word listed at the bottom, contentious. These are those who are self-seeking and they will not inherit eternal life. Paul describes their inheritance as wrath and fury. You doing okay? Okay. So Paul is saying this. He's saying that the works and deeds that we do reveal where our hearts are. Our works and deeds reveal whether or not we have surrendered our lives to Christ as Savior, Lord, and Teacher. Now, what does this have to do with judgmentalism? I know that's the question you were asking. I'll ask it for you. We'll continue to read in verses 9 and 11. He says this. He says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Now, pay attention to this phrase, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So there were some Jewish believers in this community that would have thought, okay, we're the chosen ones. So so we're good. We don't just have Jesus, but we have this rich heritage. And um, I believe that there were some in these communities that believed that they would be the first in line for blessing because of who they are. I don't necessarily believe that every Jew that was a believer in this community believed that, believed that, but there were some, and there was enough that Paul felt it was necessary for him to write this. And so what Paul does, and I guess I'd say this, there were probably some in the community, if you even just rewind back a little bit to the end of chapter one, as Paul is talking about um, Gentiles and how, how Gentiles would be prone towards certain kinds of sins. There would have been Jews in the congregation would have been like, yeah, those Gentiles, they just don't get it. But we are first in line 
of the blessing. And we have the law. And Paul, who I want to remind you, is a Jewish believer. So these are his words, not mine. Paul flips the script and says, okay, fine. First in line for blessing, then you're also the first in line for judgment. So that's the thing. And so he draws this out. Now, now there's a phrase that comes out in the text, and, and, and it comes out a number of times in the letter of Romans, and it's the phrase, um, first the Jew, then the Gentile. We see it positively, and we see it negatively. If you turn back, and I'm going to ask you to turn back one page to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, this is the revelation of the gospel that Paul is bringing, and, and look for that phrase here. Paul says this, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Look at your neighbor and say, everyone. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So salvation is about faith and our works flow from that faith. But he says this, he says, first the Jew, then the Gentile. Well, what does he mean by that? By saying that the gospel comes first to the Jews and then the Gentiles. Well, there's a lot we could say about that, but we could at least say this, that the eternal son of God was made incarnate took on the form of a human being, more specifically, a Jewish baby boy. And he was, in fact, the Messiah of Israel. And he came to his own and was rejected and crucified. And he rose from the grave and he sent his own, which were Jewish disciples, out into the world to carry the blessed news of the gospel to the whole world, including Rome first to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. So even this is true of of Israel's kind of life of faith, God's plan in calling Abraham. If you read back in Genesis 12, his plan was to form the people Israel who would be a blessing to the whole world a light to all nations, not to claim sort of a superiority or a special privilege over them, but to view themselves as servants to the world, to point the world to the one true God, which is what we are called to as God's chosen, the new Israel, Christians. Our job is to point the world to its true king. And that's what we must do. We must do that rather than, than judge. Rather than judging the world, which we talked about last week, but, and then rather than existing within a critical and condemning spirit towards one another, we ought to just magnify the good news of Jesus and call each other to put our faith and trust in him. And so I say this again, what do our works reveal They reveal what we're seeking. Our works reveal where we have placed our faith. And we must move on. We could say more, but we must move on. So let's consider also what the law reveals. 
So what does the law reveal? There's, there's, again, there's like so much that we could say here, but Paul is referring to the Mosaic law. And this is the law given to Israel as they left slavery in Egypt. It was given by God through Moses and the law governed the Hebrews pe- Hebrew people's lives as God's people. And Jesus came, and what did he say? He said, I came to fulfill the law. And so in Christ, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the king, and that salvation comes by grace and is received through faith in him. And now there are these communities forming of Jews and Gentiles, and the question that is pressing on these communities is this, like, what good is the law? Do we need that? Again, so the tensions would have been around things like dietary restrictions and and Sabbath keeping and things of that nature. These are the questions that would have arisen. And so what good is the law? What does the law reveal? Again, we could say so much and we'll have to because Romans, as as we continue on through it, will say a lot about the law. But I want to say this today because this is really important for us to grab a hold of. The law reveals how desperately lost we are. It reveals our need for a savior, our need for the gospel. We need someone to redeem us. And the law amplifies that reality. And again, you can turn over just one page and you'll see this in Romans chapter three, verse 20. Just turn there for a second. Listen to this. Paul says this, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law brings knowledge of sin. It crystallizes sin. The law reveals how desperately lost we are. And I think that's at least in part what Paul is saying is the answer to the Jews who are saying, we, Jewish believers who say, yes, we have, we have the good news of Jesus and we also have the law. And Paul would say, well, the law is, is able to reveal how lost you are. Not to stir up pride or a sense of superiority in you. Because what matters is faith in Jesus. Okay, let's, so let's read this as we keep going through Romans 2, verse, and let's read verses 12 to 15. Paul says this, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Remember, deeds flow out of who we really are and what we're really seeking. And then he says this, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What in the world does that mean? I read this to my wife yesterday. I was like, what do you think this means? She's like, I don't know. Like, just tell me about Jesus. She's really, really smart. And she's like, I don't really understand what that means. And I was like, well, there's actually a lot of different interpretations of what these few verses mean actually mean and what they're telling us about the law. 
And I think that this is what Paul is saying, and I offer this humbly today, because again, there are many opinions. The point that Paul is making is that whether you have the law or not, possessing the law or not possessing the law cannot put you in right standing with God. So, within the law, there's over 600 laws in the Old Testament, okay? And so we cannot dissect every single one of them. But I'll say this. What it appears that Paul is saying is that the Gentiles sometimes do the things that are prescribed in the law. I'll be specific. Many of us have heard of the Ten Commandments, so think about this, okay? The Ten Commandments were given specifically to the Hebrew community that God was forming. But I think Paul's argument is something like this. Surely you have met a Gentile who honors their parents. And I think Paul is also saying, surely you have met a Gentile who hasn't committed adultery. Surely you have met a Gentile who has not committed murder. Am I right? Paul is saying that that there are people who have an innate sense of good and evil. He's saying that every person has a moral code, an innate sense of good and evil, and that comes from God alone. And we see evidence of that when we look out into the world. So people have an innate sense of good and evil, and they either obey it or they disobey it whether they acknowledge God or not. Paul goes on to say that these Gentiles, we're told, they have a conscience, okay? Which is part of the way that human beings know what is right and wrong. But even the conscience is an imperfect guide, he tells us here, because sometimes it accuses us and sometimes it excuses us. Have you ever seen somebody do something that is just blatantly wrong and then say this? Well, my conscience is clear. And you're like, how? Like, how, how is that, that your conscience is clear? So here, here, here's, what we, here's what Paul is saying. The law reveals how desperately lost we are. But it cannot save us. He's saying this to the Jewish believers. that They're like, but we have that. And he's like, but that can't save you. And he would also say that our conscience is evidence that the creator of of heavens and earth, God himself, has written into our hearts what is good and what is evil. But even that, even our conscience, which sort of evaluates the things that we've done, even that cannot save us from judgment. Because what matters to Paul is this. What matters is whether or not a person has placed their faith in Christ Jesus. If they have been captured by the grace of God, if they have surrendered their life to Christ, which results in a new heart and new desires and and the life that flows from that in the spirit. It's not enough to possess the Bible. It's not enough to say I've got a perfect church attendance record even throughout the pandemic. Apart from Jesus Christ, every person, Jew or Gentile, is lost 
And Paul impresses that on our hearts. And the law reveals that. Okay, so here's what we've seen. We've seen what our works or our deeds reveal. They, they reveal what we are seeking, either glory or self. We have seen what the law reveals, and that is that we are desperately lost and in need of a savior. And now we will consider what the day of judgment will reveal. And Paul says this in verse 16. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men and women by Christ Jesus. This is an important part of our Christian faith that we can be kind of sheepish about. But there will be a day of judgment when some will experience the joy of eternal life with God based on the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. These are those who are in Christ, one of Paul's favorite ways of describing Christians, those who are in Christ. And these are those who have been transformed from the inside out and are seeking glory. And that quest will lead them to eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. How would we describe the new heavens and the new earth? Glory to the max. And then there are those who are self-seeking. And this is a sobering reality. Suppressing the truth of God as Paul reveals in chapter one. And their inheritance is what Paul calls wrath and fury. And I will say this. Hell is, I believe, self-seeking to the max. If heaven is glory to the max, and hell is self-seeking to the max, which begins in this life and carries on into the next. And according to Paul, it will be torment. I know, like when's kickoff, right? Like, did I invite my friend today? Um, this is a hard truth to talk about for Christians because it feels judgy, right? A lot of Christians who have deconstructed their faith, it's like, it's like conversations like this, which, which led to that. But I wanna, I wanna say this, and I actually believe this. When we deny the reality of a day of judgment, we actually become more judgmental. Us, you and I, when we deny God's place as judge, we fill that role pretty quickly. I'll illustrate by sharing a story from one of my top three favorite books on pastoral ministry. This book is called The Art of Pastoring by David Hansen. It's awesome. If you're looking um, for a great book to read or if you're trying to become more compassionate for your pastor, this is a good book. <laughs> what, a great, what a great recommendation, right? Endorsement. So in this book, Hansen, he, he talks about how different aspects of theology has shaped his life as a pastor. He's retired now. And he said this, he said, the hardest part of theology for him to embrace was the doctrine of hell, of judgment, and the reality that some will spend eternity apart from God. 
And he struggled with this doctrine, and don't we all? And so this is like, listen to this whole story. Like, if you're watching online, don't turn this off and don't walk out of the room for just a second. So, because I want to be clear, he, he, did, he did this. He said, for a season, he writes in his book, for a season, he secretly embraced um, universalism, which is the idea that everyone escapes judgment. Essentially, what he did is he stopped believing in hell. And he didn't tell his congregation. He didn't like broadcast this. Um, it was just sort of an undercurrent in, in his life and in his ministry. He embraced this. And this is what happened. He, he said, he describes it this way. He says, he thought embracing the idea that there would be no day of, judge, of judgment, he thought that that would make him feel better. He thought that it would make him more compassionate. But he talks in the book about how that doctrine actually failed him. He says this, he says, I started to despise my congregation. I didn't believe that God would judge their lives, so I became their judge. He says this, he says, I told them what they should do rather than telling them what they must do, which is surrender their lives to Christ and build their lives on him. He said this, he said, even the theologically liberal or progressives in his church hated his sermons when he embraced universalism. It had the total opposite effect. They're like, there's no fire in you. He's like, I know, I gave it up. And it's this amazing story because the end of the story, um, as he talks about this in the book, is he he realized that if the gospel has, that the gospel has no power for this life, if it doesn't have eternal significance for the life to come, do you understand what I'm saying? It's just shoulds. You should do this. You should be better. You shouldn't, you shouldn't keep doing these things that you do all the time. He said he took on God's rightful place as judge when he sort of took him off the throne. And the truth is, is that we need a day of judgment so that we can stop judging one another. So we can stop judging the world and also so this perpetual condemning and judgmental spirit will be crushed in our community and we can love in the way that Jesus has called us to. So how does that happen? It happens, I believe, as we look ahead to the day of judgment. When every secret, Paul says in verse 16, will be exposed. And isn't that humbling to think about? Maybe we don't think about that enough, the implications of that. So let's do a little mental exercise as we close. There's a screen above my head right here. And it's blank. And I want you to imagine that a rolling text starts to come down this screen over my head. Kind of like, remember the beginning of the Star Wars movies? When it like starts coming down. And what comes down on the screen as I'm standing here is not Bible verses. Not song lyrics. It's actually all of my sins, just rolling. The 
overt sins that I've committed and also the sins in thought that I've committed. All my secrets exposed to all of you. Some, many of you, almost all of you would be appalled at that. But there's some of you, a select few, who would not be surprised. I'm thinking of my dear wife. She would say, yeah, that's, that sounds like him. I'm thinking of my friend Christopher, one of our pastors. As this, you know, rolling text, and again, we'd be here a long time, listed my sins. Christopher would say, yeah, no, he shared that with me. And it would just sort of roll on and on. Some of you who know me well would nod your head. Many of you would judge me though. But here's how the exercise go. After my turn, it's your turn. And you would come up, each of us one by one, and the screen would roll and our sins would be exposed to one another. The atmosphere in the room would shift from judgment to maybe something closer to humility. Because we all knew that we would get our turn. We all knew this. And what would happen was we'd look at each other differently. Our pride would diminish. We would stop, you know, virtue signaling and flexing our morality over one another. We'd be humbled. Some of us would feel a deep sense of humiliation, I'm sure. And we would be reminded of how lost we are apart from Christ. And I want to talk about Jesus because I want to imagine that we all get our turn and then we sit here in the reality of that. And just, just for a second, Imagine that the risen Lord Jesus walks through that door back there onto this stage. And wouldn't you know that the screen behind him would be blank, right? Because he had no secrets. Jesus knew no sin. He practiced what he preached. He set a standard and he lived by it and he's the only one who ever has and ever could. And he lived out this way all the way to his death. None of us could stand in our own judgments, let alone God's judgment, except for him. He is the one who is able to judge, Paul says at the end of this text. And he would say to us, I believe, you would say, only I can judge you, but only I can redeem you. And only I can save and heal and justify and sanctify every one of you who believes, everyone who believes. None of the things that we hold up as most important about us, our ethnicity, our status, none of that actually matters. The only thing that matters is, is if we are in Christ, who had no debt, but canceled ours. I said, charge it to my account. He said, I'll cover you. This is the gospel. And hear me, this is what can heal 
our judgmentalism against one another. I love this. I love this. This, I never noticed this until this week. In verse 16, Paul doesn't say the gospel. What does he say? He says, my gospel. And when Paul says my gospel, he's not saying I invented this thing or I made up this good news. He's saying it's personal. He's He's telling this community, you have to be able to say, this is my gospel because it's true for you. And if the gospel becomes my gospel, that begins to heal our relationships. It begins to bring a spirit of of unity within the church. Yes, we call out sin, but we do it in a humble way. Because we know the day is coming where we will rely on the judge to also be the one who saved. So when we sing about that, when we read about that in the text, when we talk about that reality in our community groups and in our various relationships, when we preach the gospel to one another, it heals the judgmentalism that we are so prone to. I want to ask this question to each one of you because I think this is very important and practical for your life. Have you shared sort of the rolling text of sins by confessing it to someone in your life? Is there, and I'm not saying everybody, (laughs) please hear me, but is there one, two, or three people who knows your sin? And you've confessed it to them. And they to you. Which creates a true bond when two people refer to themselves not as like spiritually elite or whatever. But just, just, just one beggar who can tell other beggars where the bread is. When we do that, when we confess our sins to God and call out to him and place our trust in Christ, and when we confess our sins to one another, the gospel becomes my gospel. And so let's pray. Father, we, we long to embrace these truths And we thank you, Lord, for your scriptures which which call out humility in us. They call us to place our lives in trust in Christ, Lord. We ask that you would help us to do this, this day and every day. May we confess Christ as Lord. May we confess Christ as Savior, May we confess that Christ is our teacher who shows us the way. May we confess our sins to one another and crush the spirit of judgmentalism that is so present in our communities. May we walk in the light of the gospel together. In your name we pray. And everybody said, amen.